Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for joining us for a Political Rewind. We once again are uh, doing our show from remote locations around, actually not just in Georgia, but in South Carolina, which I'll explain in uh, just a minute. Uh, so everybody's on the telephone. Uh, I'm working out of my home studio in the Decatur area, and uh, we uh, continue to broadcast this show day in and day out uh, because you tell us that you uh, it's one of the things that keeps you kind of in touch with reality as we all live our new kind of sheltered lives. Uh, and in fact, before I introduce the panel, just a quick comment on that. Yesterday, I invited you all to um, email me. Let me know how you're doing, um, how you're handling this strange new world in which we're living. And, and any number of you did. I'm starting to go through a lot of those emails, and I hope that over the weekend I can really dig into them more deeply. And um, early next week, perhaps without, I don't want to name people who haven't asked to be named, but maybe share with you some of the stories that I'm getting from people. And I must say most of them are very optimistic. People are finding ways uh, to get value out of this uh, new isolation that we all find ourselves in. So thank you so much for writing me, and I, I encourage you to continue to do that. Um, let's get to a few news headlines about Georgia and the coronavirus before we introduce the panel. We now have 1,387 confirmed cases. That's up 290 cases uh, in one day. And these figures are from 7 o'clock last night, the time in which the state releases these figures. Um, 47 deaths to all totaled, nine people in one day. <clears throat> Excuse me, we have 438 people hospitalized. Uh, which is up 77 from yesterday. Uh, we continue to lag far behind in testing, and we're going to get into that uh, with our, our panel at some point today. Uh, finally, just quickly, um, the, uh, the news out of the uh, Labor Department in, in, in Washington that we have well over 3 million people filing for unemployment is uh, a record. And we're waiting eagerly to hear what the state figures are. Some of you may know, we discussed the fact that last week we had 400% increases in the number of people filing for unemployment. So we'll get those figures at some point and report them to you as soon as we can. All right, with all, oh, one last note. Please remember that tonight at 8 o'clock, GPB TV, GPB radio, and TV and radio stations around the state will be carrying the town meeting that Governor Kemp has asked TV and radio stations to carry, um, in which he'll address coronavirus. He'll have Dr. Kathleen Toomey, Commissioner of Public Health there, as well as other members of his administration to uh, talk about how we're dealing with the virus and uh, what the state uh, anticipates in the weeks ahead which makes the group that we have assembled for today's show all the more important, I think. We're going to talk about the science of the virus, the medical aspects of the virus, with a really distinguished group. Uh, first of all, it's Thursday, which means that Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Kevin, when I said we're coming from different locations, including South Carolina, you're heading back to Atlanta, and you're stopped somewhere near Columbia to be able to join us for the show. 
Yeah, that's right, Bill. I've been uh, isolating myself in our place in South Carolina, headed back to Atlanta because we're going to have a uh, staff-wide video meeting for our staff to try to, uh, you know, stay in touch with our employees and their needs. And uh, in order to do that, I need to be present in our building, which is virtually empty, as are the studios at Georgia Public Broadcasting. All right. Well, take care. Be careful when you uh, get back here and and make sure that you're practicing good social distancing uh, techniques, uh, Kevin. We want you to stay healthy. We're also joined today by Dr. Uh, Joshua Weitz, who is a professor of biological sciences at Georgia Tech. Um, You also, Dr. Weitz, lead a research group called the Weitz Group. And to put the the mission of the group in just one sentence, as you do on the website, your primary mission is to understand how viruses transform human health and the fate of the planet. That captured my attention and uh, really encouraged me to want to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us, uh, Professor Weitz. Thanks for having me today. And that's right. We we work as modelers uh, to try to understand how viruses, these infectious agents, transform not just the fate of one cell or host or individual, but really populations and the world around us. So um, happy to be here. Also happy to be in this different context, though I can't say it's a great sign for political news when you have someone who works on viruses from a scientific side on your program. So I get that, and we'll try to get into some of those details today. I appreciate that very much. We're also joined by Dr. Mark Rosenberg. Uh, Mark Rosenberg has had an extraordinarily distinguished career in the world of public health. He was the founding CEO and the president of the Task Force for Global Health, which is to this day one of the world's most significant groups in combating uh, global health issues, diseases around the world, diseases like uh, trachoma, river blindness, so many others. And uh, that's only beginning to get the tip of the iceberg at what Dr. Rosenberg worked on and helped put in place during his tenure at the Task Force for Global Health. Before that, he was at the Centers for Disease Control, where he was the first permanent director of the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. Mark, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Bill, for having me. I do want to correct one thing. I was not actually the founding CEO of the Task Force for Global Health, even though for some people I worked there 17 years, and it must have seemed like I was there forever. But the founding (laughs) CEO was Bill Fage. Bill Fage, the man really responsible for the eradication of another fatal viral disease, smallpox. And then I followed Bill. I've been thinking an awful I've been thinking an awful lot about Bill Fagey and his work on smallpox uh, lately, uh, as a matter of fact. Thanks for uh, sharing that uh, with us, Mark. All right, let's do, to start our conversation today about the coronavirus, I want to go back to 2015. Uh, At a TED Talk in Vancouver that year, Bill Gates gave a presentation in which he appeared on stage carrying a big metal canister that appeared to be one of those kind of army issue sorts of uh, devices. And uh, he began talking about his subject for the day. Let's listen to what he said. When I was a kid, the disaster we worried about most was a nuclear war. Today, the greatest risk of global catastrophe doesn't look like this. Instead, it looks like this. 
If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Not missiles, but microbes. Now, part of the reason for this is that we've invested a huge amount in nuclear deterrence, but we've actually invested very little in a system to stop an epidemic. We're not ready for the next epidemic. Bill Gates in 2015, uh, with a prescient statement about, I think, what our panel may very well agree is the state we find ourselves in today. Um, you know, Joshua, if you don't mind my calling you Joshua and Mark, and one, of the, one of the things that called, called you both to, to my attention was you were both in the AJC uh, this past week, and you both had uh, warnings for the state of Georgia that I want to talk about a little bit. Mark, you had an op-ed piece in Sunday's paper in which you, uh, and I'll let you talk about it, but you started out by saying that you thought that despite the virus, as long as you practiced uh, uh, certain uh, safety measures, you could continue to have pretty much a normal life. And suddenly you realize that wasn't the case. Talk a little bit about what you said in that column. Well, thanks, Bill. I also wanted to make the point that I had the impression that as long as I kept myself clean, as long as I kept myself healthy, that was my job. And I didn't realize that that was a mistaken vision. And it made me think of two men on a camping trip who all of a sudden see a ferocious bear starting to charge at them. And one man says, I'm getting out of here. The other man looks at him and says, what makes you think you can outrun that bear? And the first man looks at him and says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. And that was the attitude I had, that as long as I could keep myself and my family safe and healthy, that was the beginning and ending of my task. And that was wrong because I didn't realize that those two men are actually tied together. My fate is tied to the fate of everyone else in this country. There won't be enough beds or hospital care for me or my family if other people are getting sick. I need to help everybody because we're all in this together. And I think that was a huge realization to me. And it made me think that not only do I have to keep my life normal, but I have to do everything possible. I have to prevent every possible chain of transmission. And that's much more than just keeping me and my family safe. I have a responsibility for everyone all around me. And that really struck me. I don't think most people realize that. I don't think the governor realizes how interdependent we are. And to me, that's a word that needs to enter this conversation, interdependence. And I think Josh's models show very clearly how interdependent we are and how important that is. I think that was the main point that I was trying to make there. We're dependent on a lot of institutions. We're dependent on a lot of people, and we're dependent on all of us doing our job. And Joshua, uh, that leads me to what caught my attention about the work you're doing. You're quoted in yesterday's Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, projecting, based on modeling you've done, 
what might happen in terms of the spread of the infection in this state, depending on the various uh, protective measures we take moving forward. Share with us a little about what your modeling shows in that respect. Sure. And I want to, first of all, just agree with what Mark just said, that we are connected. And we're connected in the sense that the steps individuals take uh, to social distance from others to not try to get infected as themselves also is reducing transmission that could affect other people. And that is critically important, not just for those, I know there's been a lot of discussion about individuals over 60 with heightened risk, but also people in their 20s or 30s who have people like their parents or grandparents and friends and family who they love who are in their 60s or themselves maybe at risk. And so trying to protect yourself also slows down the rate at which others may be infected. And that really is the core idea behind what I've done in terms of these models of epidemic spread. And those models are consistent in spirit, in, in some cases in many details, with other modelers as well. The core idea is how do we think not just about what happens to one person as an individual, but all of us as a population. And so the core idea of these models is that if an individual, we can take an individual perspective, get sick and then maybe passes this on to two more people, and those two pass it on to two more people. I mean, these are exercises that an elementary school kid could do. Then you get four and eight and 16 and 32, and you keep going until very quickly you're into thousands or tens of thousands. And given the demographics of Georgia, some of those people who get sick will become quite sick and will have to be hospitalized. And amongst those in hospitals, some of those will get acute illness, require ventilators, and some of those will die. And there are knock-on effects. As many people have said, once you start having hospitals filled with individuals with COVID-19, then other people with critical issues, whether cardiac issues or other issues that need medical attention, won't be able to get the right kind of attention, or even uh, infectious disease may spread in a hospital setting. So the core idea of these models are really to try to take those individual outcomes and translate them to this population scale. I'm sure we can get into some of the details, but those are the core ideas. Kevin, uh, uh, quoted in your paper yesterday, uh, Joshua White said, if we behaved as if things were normal, his modeling shows that 25,000 people in Georgia could die by September, that the number would drop to 10,000 people when people reduced infectious contact with others by 40%. Um, But then he also posted a graphic saying that if we reduced infectious contacts by 60 percent, we could keep the number of deaths at around 100 for the next two months and buy time to develop long-term strategies. Now, Kevin, whether you're talking about 100 people, I mean, that's grim enough to think about 100 people dying. But but the notion that the less we do, uh, the numbers suddenly become exponentially larger, Kevin, is really, uh, I think, frightening. Yeah, and I think that what comes out of what both uh, Dr. Weitz and Dr. Rosenberg have both said is that we're, we're in, a, in a very tough spot as Georgians and Americans. And what I mean by that is, is, is this, you know, this idea of the rugged individualist, in particular in a conservative state like Georgia, where there's a strong mindset that uh, people ought to figure it out on their own, that the government needs to intervene less, that that we are better off trusting the market and the individual, um, is not something a virus appears to pay much attention to. 
And so we're in this situation where whether we like it or not, what we do individually is affecting other people around us. And if we don't recognize that and do something about that, then we have to live with the consequences, which could be extremely dire. And as you know, that's how the debate has shifted in some ways nationally. And the president has prompted this, which is, well, maybe the cure of this uh, pandemic is actually worse than, uh, you know, letting it go because of the economic consequences. And I think that the modeling and the, our own figures in Georgia show, show that we'd better watch out. Bill, do you realize that you know, we, the latest death figures, which you, you cited at the top of the show, 47 people in Georgia, right? I mean, that's, again, 47 lives lost to this pandemic so far. Do you realize that one week ago, the number of people uh, uh, that had died was three, and now it's 47? I mean, think of the implications of that, and I do believe that's what Dr. White's modeling is warning us about. And, and that's precisely what I'm warning people about because we don't understand exponentials. We're used to linear things that if I do a little bit more, I'll get a little bit of a gain. If I do a little bit less, I'll get a little less of a gain. But these things compound and they go fast. I want to answer, respond to two things you just said, Kevin, if I could. First of all, that I know there's a political show, but this virus doesn't care about your politics. I want to point out Bartow County and Dougherty County. They voted incredibly differently with respect to the 2016 election. Bartow, I think it was about 70 percent Republican, Dougherty about 70 percent Democratic in terms of the, the vote for, for president. They both have clusters of cases that rival those of large-scale metro Atlanta counties in terms of nearly 100 cases, yet they have one-eighth of the population. Right? So these are counties that are very different, probably in demographics and structure and affiliations, but it is going there, too. And the reason why I think that we've taken the wrong approach, why we need to take a new one quickly, is because if you look back three days, we had about 600 cases. Now it's 1,200. Just do the math projecting forward three days. Look at 40 deaths, which might become 80 deaths. These numbers go up quite rapidly. It will take a collective effort in order to realize that each person has a role to play in reducing these infectious transmissions. And then if we can do that collectively, we may have a chance to have a long-term strategy. When I say that, I mean that I think there's a false dichotomy being set up. The dichotomy is that we must go into this sort of shelter in place quasi-permanently, or we have to open it back up, leading to catastrophic outcomes. And I think there are third ways. The purpose of sheltering in place and of trying to reduce uh, contacts now should be to buy us time to do the sorts of things that can lead to sustainable both social health and economic outcomes in the long term. And testing is key to that. It's key because testing is not meant to just confirm diagnoses. It's meant, if done well, to help reduce transmission, right? You don't want to have testing as pathology. Can I explain I something about, uh, uh, yeah. about modeling and why the Go work ahead, that Mark. Josh is do- I want to explain about modeling and why the work that Josh is doing is so important and why we need to listen. In World War II, my father taught instrument flying at West Point. And pilots need to know how to fly their plane when they can't see. 
and they can do it because they have instrumentation. We are flying blind in this epidemic. We don't know who's infected. We don't know who's, in conta who's contagious. We don't know who's cured and immune because we don't have enough testing to make the disease visible. So we are fighting an invisible enemy. And what Josh is doing, these models, is developing our instrumentation. We've got to use the instruments when we're flying blind. We've got to base our recommendations on what Josh can tell us, on what the scientists can tell us, because we can't see. And because we can't see, people react very differently. You react very differently to an enemy that you can see. If there's a fire coming, you see the smoke, you feel the heat, you see the flames, and we can't see this one. That's why we need this guidance. That's why we need the scientists, and that's why we need CDC to make it visible. It's also why we need the AJC to let us know what's happening and to make this problem visible to all of us. But modeling, I think most of us think about it as something done by beautiful people on a runway. This is really different modeling, and it's really important. Mark, yeah. um, with, with that, all that said, let me, let me just ask a quick question, Joshua. I'm sorry. With all that said, um, we've seen President Trump in the last few days suggest that uh, he wants to open the country back up for business by Easter. And tonight, we're going to be watching a town meeting in which Governor Kemp will talk about the state response to the virus. And we know that Governor Kemp has continued to resist uh, a shelter-in-place order for the entire state. I think, Mark, and then Joshua, both of you, I, I, I'm hearing both of you say that not issuing a shelter-in-place order uh, is creating real jeopardies for all of us as Georgians. Have, have I got that right, Mark? You do have it right, Bill. And in part, some people think that we can still contain the disease by finding those people who are testing positive and sick. But in truth, the containment that epidemiologists and public health workers can do when there are 10 cases is not something you can do when there are 66,000 cases. Each person who's infected or exposed may have 250 contacts that need to be traced down. We can't do that when there are 66,000 cases known in this country. We can't do containment case by case. It's too late for that. It's too late in New York and it's too late in Georgia. And we've got to do community-wide measures to reduce the transmission and the way to contain it at this point is to tell everyone to try to contain it. Everyone act as if you might be exposed or if you might be infected. And this is why we need these okay. guidelines. So I, I've said a couple times on the show in the last week or so, because we're all on telephone, in some ways I have to play traffic cop more than I would when we're all in the studio together. So with that in mind, Joshua, I'd love to hear your response to that. And Kevin, I want to get you back into the conversation after that. But please, uh, Dr. Weitz, go ahead. So I, I agree. I agree with everything Mark just said. I mean, the scale of this problem demands action now. 
The other issue that's important, which has also made it difficult to contain, is that COVID-19 has a what scientists might call an asymptomatic transmission route, maybe subclinical or mild symptomatic route, meaning someone who has sniffles or has a low-grade fever and maybe a little fatigue. In a normal circumstance, you're not going to go see your doctor and you're not going to go get tested, but those people can transmit on and somewhat, one might argue, silently. The notion that we're going to somehow use tests of only those who are quite sick, confirm that diagnosis, and, and again, also in some cases, taking these tests in hospital settings as opposed to doing it outside of hospitals, which is key to try to get people tested in a non-hospital setting so we can reserve hospital time for those most critically in need. We can't do that if there's not the kind of statewide order. There's still movement in bars and restaurants, and you can see across the state clusters growing up in different places outside the city of Atlanta. This is not an Atlanta issue. This is a Georgia issue. And I know the governor said something to that effect, that we're not Democrats, we're not Republicans, we're Georgians. I agree. We also, therefore, as Georgians, all need to have sufficient testing and a statewide plan, including shelter-in-place orders that go statewide, not piecemeal. It's not going to be effective if we continue to have this gradual approach. If you wait until the case numbers are too high in a local community, then you're already in the position that Mark just said, particularly because we're undercounting, we're under-testing. All right, um, Kevin, I want to give you a chance to get engaged, but I'm going to give you the first question after we take a break on Political Rewind. Um, we'll have a lot more of this conversation. I think we've established pretty clearly that our two doctors on the panel today think we should be taking much more stringent measures. I want to move on and give Kevin a chance, and then I want to see if, uh, what we know about the nature of this virus, which isn't a whole lot. You're listening to Political Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Rewind, we'll be right back. We're back on Political Rewind. Dr. Joshua Weitz, who is a professor of the biological sciences at Georgia Tech. Uh, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, a former uh, head of the Task Force for Global Health, one of the world's uh, most uh, significant uh, organizations fighting diseases around the world. And Kevin Riley, also with us, of course, editor of the AJC. Kevin, I want to give you a chance to jump in and talk to our panelists or ask any, you know, or any observations you might want to share at this point? Well, you know, I think people listening out there, as they listen to Dr. Weiss and Dr. Rosenberg, and they talk about modeling and exponential growth and all that stuff, uh, let, me, let me try something that has completely simplified this entire pandemic for me, and it's this. I've been watching the cases and the deaths and the pandemic spread in two states. Of course, Georgia, a big part of my job, but also Ohio where I have many family members uh, and nieces and nephews. And, and if we look at the numbers, we can see 
that the modeling and the theories that our two experts are putting out there do have impact. And this is what I mean. Everybody knows that the Ohio governor, Mike DeWine, was extremely aggressive in what he did early on. I mean, it hit me hard when he canceled the NCAA tournament games in Cleveland, which I was planning to go to, which was the first time this whole pandemic got very, very personal to me. And if you look at the two states, and this is as of yesterday, okay, Ohio has 704 cases and 10 deaths. Georgia, where we have had more of a laissez-faire approach to this, has 1,387 cases and 47 deaths. So there's a difference of 37 lives in the actions between the two states. So if you need any proof that the theories our two experts are talking about actually matter, I have seen that in a very personal way that they are absolutely correct. Um. All right, let me let me move. I, I do want to make one point here, uh, and and I, I want to turn to you on this uh, first, Joshua, because your models are, are are alarming. Mark Rosenberg, you have pointed to them as really significant in how we uh, uh, deal with the virus. Uh, Joshua, what do you make of people like uh, like Professor Ioannidis at uh, Stanford University? He's a professor of, of epidemiology. I'm sure you're aware of him. Uh, he thinks that the modeling on coronavirus is exaggerated, and, and I think to simplify some of what he says, and others like him say, is that we simply don't know enough about this virus to know whether the model, standard models we'd use are uh, in fact correct right now. Your whole career is built around studying viruses. What do you make of those in your field who are pushing back a bit on modeling? I think we have to be prudent when we don't know enough. And it's true that we don't know enough. The question is, how do we react to that uncertainty? So I think respectfully disagree with the professor from Stanford, and I know that work, is that I would turn to folks like Mark Lipsitch at Harvard and others who have disagreed, and it's not hard for me to do the same, insofar as that maybe we don't know enough, but does that mean that we shouldn't act? If it turns out that we've overreacted, that is a far better outcome than having underreacted and borne the consequences of our lack of reaction, because the consequences uh, are large. And you can even see historical evidence of this, and maybe, Mark, you probably can speak to this more than I can, and some of the comparisons in the response, and although that's 100 years ago and times are different, between city responses in the Spanish flu, the great 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, between cities that reacted very differently and had very different outcomes. So it's true that the models have uncertainties. It's true that we're acting in a fog of war situation where because of testing we don't quite know how many people are asymptomatic and symptomatic and therefore there will be uncertainty. But we can see, and you can look at Italy and Spain and New York City and even what's happening here. I think I should believe my eyes and the data that we see in front of us that the pace is quickening. And even if we don't know every detail of every fraction of cases, you know, the particular transmission rates, we can still begin to see the broad trends, and the broad trends are consistent. We need to reduce infectious yeah. transmissions now. Again, not because those 20,000 deaths are inevitable, but because they're preventable, because we can make the difference. That does not need to be our future. And I think that is the key point. We have some control and ability to take steps. 
Mark, uh, even Dr. Fauci said uh, last night at the briefing that he sees the pace of this virus accelerating in many parts of the country. It is accelerating. Are you there, Mark? And there are, yeah. Yes. Can you hear me, Bill? There are, it's a yep, new virus. Ahead. It's a new disease. It's a new game. And it's not a game. But it, there are things we don't know about it. But we always have to proceed with uncertainties. Um, a famous physicist, Feynman, said that we should avoid certainty because it's the Achilles heel of science. Um, and we're learning as we go, but that doesn't mean we discard what we know from past experience and the lessons we've learned. And it doesn't mean we discard what the best models are telling us now, even if we're not certain. It's the best advice we have, and we've got to use it. The cost of ignoring what we know are, we're seeing those every day by how this is Kevin? escalating exponentially. Hey, um, I have a question for you, Mark. I mean, you have a lot of experience, you know, because of the task force and, and some other things that you've done it, it, where, you know, this sort of outbreak happens in a uh, third world country or in a more isolated place in, in a way where cultural and other factors play in. I mean, describe some of that and, and, and tell us about the parallels that you see, like what it, what is why are people resisting some of these what appear i think to you to be obvious ideas well it's a good question kevin i think human behavior is the hardest part of this epidemic for us to control and that is hard and it's very hard right now people have a limited view they have limited understanding and a lot of what the models tell us are based on putting together information about lots of people interacting at the same time. Our view, especially now, is really circumscribed. We are socially isolated, and it's hard for us to see what's happening to other people. Uh, but I think that there are lots of lessons from other epidemics that we've learned. I think we've learned that science has to be the basis for our decision-making and the basis our policy. And we've also learned that we need to know the truth. What is happening? What's the real status? What's really going on? Not the truth as will benefit any politicians. The politics enter this, of course. Every public health decision has political aspects to it. But we need to know the truth and act on the truth. And people need to know that we're telling them the truth. If we lose the trust of the people, we lose one of the most valuable things that we have. They won't listen. They won't do what the politicians ask them if they don't believe us. So I think there's a lot we do know about this human behavior side of it. Does it complicate things? Yes. Does it make it impossible? No. So for us, the challenge is how do you mobilize the best of human behavior now? How do we let people know that they're not passive victims staying at home and hunkering down and hiding, but they are actually part of a prevention brigade. They're doing their part. They're actively working to stop this. These are the things we need to communicate to people. It's hard. So I, I, a, quick, 
I'm sorry, Mark. A quick comment and then a question for you, Joshua. Uh, we, uh, Mark, we mentioned uh, uh, Bill Fagey a little while ago, who is a, a mentor of yours, a great friend of yours, and someone I've been honored to get to know very well. It strikes me that his book on how he fought the smallpox, uh, how he literally was able to eradicate smallpox with his team of people, uh, would be fascinating reading right now because it will tell us something about human behavior in the light of a disease as devastating as smallpox, government resistance to eradication. I I think people should put that book back up on their reading list. And you know what? I think I'm going to tweet out a link to uh, where you might be able to find that book. I'm not trying to sell books for Fagy, but I think it would be an instructive book for people to look at right about now. Joshua, let me turn to you. Uh, what do we know? I know that, that, that the corona vi- that this particular coronavirus is, is something that your team has not done a lot of work on at this point. But what, what can you tell us about what you're learning about this particular virus? How, how much are we beginning to grasp about it? So I think there's more that we don't know that we need to know quickly. The problem is that we can't take the time to learn what we'd like to know because things are evolving and so we have to act with the knowledge we do know. Um, Things that I think are most relevant right now are this this sort of challenging feature of coronavirus that it has an age stratified risk and there's also comorbidity risk, meaning people with pre-existing conditions or who are a bit older. It's well known then that the risk increases from sub 1% or even very low for children, almost near zero, up to 10% for those 75 and above. And those are approximate numbers, right? So you have this age stratified risk so that there's not just one mortality rate. And we've talked about that and that's another tricky thing. But even if I say the mortality rate, people intuitively think, well, if I get it, if I tell you 2% chance of dying, that means one in a group of 50 on average would die. That's very high. And that's a number. If you look at our case reports right now, Kevin, I think you're looking at the same data set as I am. If you look at Georgia and look at those numbers, we're above 2%, I believe, at this point. But those are in terms of reported cases. So we have all these non-reported cases. And that makes it quite tricky. The other thing that this has is a combination of having a relative high fatality rate for some groups, but then also high transmissibility. And so what we are facing that makes it quite challenging and why I think that we need now to impose these strict measures to buy us time to have a strategy is this combination, which is that there are chains that are cryptic, that we don't see passing, and all of a sudden there's a cluster, right? And for a county in Georgia that, you know, someone might be listening in and say, well, we don't have any in our county. Well, you soon will because people move and it might already be there and you're not even aware of it. The other thing that I think makes it hard for people to grasp, and this goes back a couple weeks when the NCAA was thinking of canceling March Madness. You know, that's a huge economic boom to Atlanta. And there's some question, why are, you, why are you canceling this? Why should we even think about canceling this? And I had friends asking me, should, should I go to a big soccer match? Should I go to a big event? And it's just hard to grasp the fact that the prevalence might be so low, but the risk that someone in a large group might be sick is almost certain, or in a medium-sized group, or even in a small group. So we have to think differently, moving outside our individual perspective to the collective perspective, and that simply is hard. Uh, The other thing I just want to point out, one last thought, 
which is we've been talking about testing this whole time, and I just want to raise the idea that there's another kind of test that we need to be doing. We've been talking thus far, and Kevin, all the data you see on whether the CDC site or COVID-19 tracking this open source version of this has to do with whether people have tested positive or negative for virus. There are many people who have never gotten a test or did get a test and then later have recovered. Some of those people may have protective antibodies to test for that, and they won't be shedding virus, so they'll come out negative. Maybe they recovered. Those individuals, I think all expectations are, now we're not totally certain, but expectations are, will not get sick. And those individuals have a critical role. In fact, as a third-way strategy, thinking more about individuals who have protective antibodies, in other words, who have recovered and are immune, at least in the next few month period or maybe longer, depending on how much the virus evolves, can be critical to restarting different sectors or being positioned in key places, whether in hospitals, first responders, educators. We need to know more about the prevalence, and to do that, we need serological tests, not just PCR tests is what we're doing now. So I think a strategy, if we really want to start to be aggressive and thinking strategically about how we move out from shelter in place into restarting sectors of the economy with telework and so on, but when we need people on hand, serological tests are going to be key. Um, let's do this. Let's get our final break. Yeah, go ahead, Mark, real quick. We got to get to a break, but make a quick comment. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of other groups that are really at high risk. Maybe when we come back, we could talk about those, the homeless and children. I want to talk very much about the homeless, and that's what I want to do after uh, a break. So, so hold that for just a second. Um, Kevin, before we go to the break, in terms of talking about behavior of this virus, what we know and don't know, one of the things that I found most disturbing in the last 24 hours, we've heard kind of mention of this in a, in, a, in, a, in a more indirect way lately. Last night, Fauci said that as he now looks at the virus's behavior in uh, the southern hemisphere, it's beginning to really feel to him as though we definitely may have a cyclical uh, a virus on our hands here and that we need to be prepared for it coming back, which is why he says we've got to find ways uh, to cope with this, whether it's through... Um, a vaccine at this point or other methods of uh, easing the spread of the virus. Kevin, that to me is one of the things that is most distressing right now. Yeah, Bill, it seems like every time uh, we all want to find a reason to quit worrying about this, we get reminded that life is not changing for us anytime soon. All right, let's do this. Let's take our second break and final break of the show. And then when we come back, yes, Mark, I know you've been working on a population we haven't talked anything about on this show, at least. And that's how this virus uh, can have an impact on the homeless and how dangerous that is, not only for their personal health, but for uh, the rest of us in communities around them. Let's uh, go to a break and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. We're back. Uh, Dr. Joshua Weitz and Dr. Mark Rosenberg, Kevin Riley with his boy. I'm, I cannot tell you two doctors uh, how much I appreciate the conversation we're having today and how much you're illuminating for me and I hope for our listeners out there how serious this, this 
um, virus really is. Now, Mark Rosenberg, I said before the break, I know you've been deeply concerned and are working with uh, an organization, I think in Los Angeles, on how COVID-19 is impacting the homeless population and what can be done uh, to deal with that. Why don't you just take a minute and tell us your concerns, Mark? Well, thanks, Bill. Um, Part of my concern comes from the mark of any society is how it treats its most vulnerable. And in our society, the homeless are among the most vulnerable for many, many reasons. And in terms of this COVID-19 epidemic, you know, we tell people shelter in place and the homeless have no place. We tell them stay home. They have no home. We tell them practice good hygiene and sanitation. They have no water, let alone hand sanitizer. So they require special help. In Los Angeles, there are 60,000 homeless people, including 44,000 who are unsheltered. But 60,000 is roughly the size of a city of New Rochelle, where people responded by calling in the National Guard. How do you do it for a dispersed population? How do you help the 4,000 homeless people in Atlanta and more throughout the state, but they really require special attention, special help. There's so many things we need to do with them and for them. We've got to get started quickly. Not only do we do it because it's the right thing to do, but if this population becomes infected, there's almost nothing that will stop it. And we may have a population that's 90%, not 20% infected and infectious. The Gateway Center is trying to coordinate a response here in Atlanta, and every city has their homeless people who really need special help and attention. There's a lot we can do for them. We can separate them, but we need to get them a place where they can stay separate, and we need to get them the ability to wash and use sanitation and isolate. We can do that and we should not overlook them. The second thing I wanted to mention is that there's another vulnerable population and these are children. Um, What we have is we have a lot of um, social isolation, but that's also social distancing. And it's a time of great, great stress. And we know that at a time of great stress, People use violence, unfortunately. Child abuse, child sexual abuse all go up during a time of great stress. It's not only stress because people are worried about getting sick and dying, but because they're cut off from their normal daily routines that give them structure and meaning in their life. They're cut off from the normal ways that they release stress and anxiety, whether it's going to a gym or going to a bar or getting together with friends or going to work to get out of the house. All of these means are now cut off. Anxiety increases. People are frustrated and they're socially isolated. And this is how family violence and when family violence increases, whether we're talking about intimate partner violence and domestic violence, or child abuse, or child sexual abuse, these things really go up during times of stress and during times of social isolation. So it's really important that we take care of the people we know, the people we live with, and are attentive 
the signs of problems, whether they be among the children or our partners. Mark, thank you uh, for calling attention to those things. Joshua, we're, we're short on time, but uh, as we move toward the end of the show, could give us a sense of is you, how is your group looking, your research group, looking to kind of retool to focus on coronavirus? Is it, a, is it something you're going to delve more deeply into in the weeks and months ahead? So we've been working on this for weeks, and unfortunately I expect that we're going to continue to have to ramp up those works in parallel to the works that we have already ongoing. One of the major issues that I think we're thinking about, and others is also, uh, trying to identify ways to reduce infectious contacts at the same time reduce the burden of social distancing. And this will not be easy. And I think the key message I would relay to folks listening who may not be as familiar, uh, whether with models or even really understand why it is that we're taking such harsh measures now, I think the central point, and I think this needs to be articulated better by leaders who implement them, the point is to buy time. Buy time in order to implement testing, equipment production, rework the way that we deal with cases so that in a few weeks or months, and probably, frankly, months before we really see a transition, we can start to reboot the sectors of the economy while still reducing transmission and letting folks like the CDC do their contact tracing to bring down case uh, towards zero. Bill, can I say something about CDC? Thank you. I, I Real quick, because we're running out of time, Mark. CDC is an incredible institution. It is our hope. It is our resource. They are the best in the world in the business they're using, and we should turn to them. They can give us the truth. They can help us, and they should be at the side of the governor. They should be at the side of the president. It's an incredible resource, and this is the time when we can appreciate and use them. The people work incredibly hard and can really help get us out of this. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Kevin, we're, we're really out of time. You know, there's a lot about uh, people have talked about fake news. They don't have as much faith in the media. I have to say, as we uh, get re- set to wrap up, I couldn't be uh, more uh, appreciative of the work that your folks over there at the AJC have been doing to bring us facts and uh, truths about this coronavirus. Congratulations uh, to what you're doing. Um, I'm, I'm just very happy that you're associated with us, Kevin. Well, we're glad to be here, and I'm extremely uh, proud of the staff and appreciative of the subscribers who are really the ones who give us the support so we can do this work. All right. Um, We're out of time. And we have another institution. Mark. And that's another institution. That's you. Okay, thank you. Uh, Kevin Riley, Joshua Weitz, Mark Rosenberg, what a fabulous show you gave it. I have a quick personal story. Today happens to be the 25th anniversary that my wife and I, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary today. I wouldn't normally mention that on the air, except, do you know what we did on the night we got married 25 years ago before leaving for our honeymoon the next day? We went to the movies. What movie did we see? Dustin Hoffman in Outbreak. I leave you with that just little anecdote uh, as we come to the end of another political rewind tomorrow. uh, Speaker David Ralston, Sam Olins, Michael Thurmond will be here. It should be a great show. See you then.